This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Please open your Bibles there. And as you're doing that, I have, have a, just a small confession. And confessions probably aren't any good when they're being videoed and recorded like this. But, but here's a, it's a small confession, and, and it's something I'm, I'm a little ashamed about. I'm a little self-conscious, particularly since Florida is our adopted home state. I mean, this is home now. We, all of our kids have been born and raised here. We lived here longer than we ever lived in Tennessee or any of that sort of stuff. But, but living here in Florida, I'm, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say this, but I have to, I have to admit it to you. I kind of like California. I said it, right? Okay, I just got it out there. Okay, no, do not hate, right? And this all started, I think, back in my college career when I spent a whole summer in Newport Beach, California with Campus Crusade for Christ doing a summer project. We were suffering for Jesus on the beach, um, sharing the four spiritual laws. Um, loved it so much. Susan and I went back for our honeymoon to the Laguna Beach area. And in fact, if you've seen the movie Jesus Revolution, the place where they do the baptisms at Pirate's Cove, that's we stayed right, right around that area. It's beautiful. We've loved it. We've had friends out there. This, this few years ago, we went to Northern California, which is obviously very different than Southern California. And so, so we like California. Probably wouldn't be our top choice to live there, but we love visiting there, all kind of good friends, those sort of things. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, it was when we first started going to California that we were ex first exposed to the big lights of Hollywood, right? Sunset Strip and Beverly Hills, and of course, the mandatory tour of Universal Studios. So this is before there was a Universal Studios in, in Orlando. And I remember going and, and they were showing us on the Backlot tour all the famous movie sets for movies that we loved. Of course, at the top of my list was The House for Leave It to Beaver. That was my personal favorite. Um, Back to the Future and Psycho. And we even got to see a taping of the show. But, but here's, here's honestly, as I look back on it, all of that was pretty underwhelming. Because on TV, all of these places seem so big and so you know, just larger than life. But when you get right up to them, they're literally just a cardboard box. They're just a facade. There's like four, you know, paper walls, you know, you know, duct taped together. And they just simply show the outside. They look so impressive on TV. But in reality, when you see them up close, you realize it's just an empty Box. And in a lot of ways, that's really a perfect picture of religious life in Israel when Jesus comes on the scene. See, the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, they were the gatekeepers of the religious life of the, of the nation. Um, they, they knew the laws, they dressed the part, and outwardly they were incredibly uh, impressive, right? They knew the Hebrew language, they they taught the people, they interpreted Torah, they, they, they played the part and people revered them. They had the highest places of honor. To, to be a Pharisee was to, to be at the top of the religious spiritual pecking order. But as you got closer and looked at them, just like that movie set, you would realize it's all a facade. You see, for them, outwardly it looked great, but upon closer inspection, you really realized that they were an inwardly corrupt 
institution. This is what Jesus takes great pains to show us in the Gospel of Matthew. What they did was for reputation, for money, for affluence, to be seen by other people. They did a lot of the right things outwardly, but inwardly they were driven by these corrupt hearts. And so because of this, the people of Israel were languishing. They were indeed sheep without a shepherd. These guys were in it for themselves. And along the way, as they were interpreting God's law and applying God's law in the Old Testament, which was good, they heaped upon the people all these man-made traditions and rituals. And so along the way, the, the, the word of God was lost. And they became incredibly burdensome and heavy on the soul of the people, and they couldn't take it anymore. And it's into this melu that Jesus enters coming, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, Jesus is doing the works of the kingdom. Jesus is healing. Jesus is, is exercising demons. Jesus is preaching good news to the poor. And as the people are gravitating to him and they're listening to his teaching, they're asking, is this the long-awaited Messiah? And now that Jesus has their attention he gathers them up on this sermon. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of mankind. And he wants to show them this is what true spirituality is. This is what kingdom living is all about. And fundamentally, as we're going to see, it's not about the outward appearance. It's not about the letter it is about the spirit. It is about a transformed heart. And as we left off last time, he, he says this, it's a shot across the bow, verse 20. It's the pivotal statement, I think, of the whole sermon when Jesus says this. He looks at the people and he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you are to enter the kingdom. And that would have been shocking, right? That, that, that would have been, I mean, these were the guys, that, the paragons of virtue. But now Jesus is saying, unless you're more righteous than them, you're not getting in the kingdom. And here's the deal, as we saw last week, it's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. Jesus is not calling for perfection. What he's calling for from them and for us would be what we would call wholehearted spirituality where the inward matches the outward, where there is a consistency, a constancy. And when we fail to achieve that, when the inward doesn't match the outward, that we're not okay with it, that we're turning to Christ, that we're confessing our sins, that we are repenting. And, and Jesus says, this is the kind of righteousness that's called for for the people of the kingdom. Not a righteousness that saves you, but it's a righteousness that demonstrates your heart has truly been changed. And so now we're entering the meat of the sermon. And this is where Jesus wants to go from the theological and the theoretical to the extremely practical. 
He wants to show us what kingdom life looks like in the most intimate spaces of our lives. And so these next six sections are all areas that Jesus wants to press in for us. He's going to talk about anger in relationships. He's going to talk about lust and adultery. He's going to talk about truth-telling, divorce, retaliation, forgiveness, love of neighbor. And and scholars have looked at lots of ways to divide these up. But it seems the, the, the sort of the consensus is that Jesus is delivering these in pairs and that each pair builds upon the other pair. And where he wants to begin this morning is where we're going to begin in the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to be reading about the Sixth and Seventh Commandment. This is going to be Matthew 5, 21 through 30. We're going to read this and unpack it together. What does life in the kingdom look like in our relationship? So if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read God's Word together this morning. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father, we know that your agenda for us is much greater than simply that we don't kill someone or don't sleep with someone who is not our spouse. Lord, you're looking into the inward places. What pleases you is a broken spirit, a contrite heart. And so, Lord, may we see these texts in your word as a window into our own hearts and our own souls. And in seeing what we find there, we turn to you for grace and mercy and forgiveness. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Please take your seats. Jesus begins his teaching where God begins his revelation of the law in the Old Testament, and that is with the Ten Commandments. And he picks two, okay? The sixth and the seventh, okay? Murder and marriage. He picks those two. 
And we have to say, why, why these two? Why did Jesus start here? Well, first, let's be honest, they're the two biggies, right? They're the two biggies. Um, you, they're the two easiest and quickest ways to, to screw up your life. You can't watch any True Crime series or Dateline series and not hit these two, right? These two are always involved. They're always at the bottom of the pile in some way, in some form, when it comes to, to public scandal. So, so they're, they're the biggies. We understand that. But they're also, number two, the easiest ones that when we get to them, they're easy to check off. Oh, I'm good there, Pastor Paul. Oh, I've... I've I've, all, I've always been physically faithful to my wife. Oh, oh, Pastor Paul, I've, I've, you know, obviously, Paul, Pastor Paul, I've never killed someone. I mean, they're, they're, they're easy to check off, right? And as we're going to see, Jesus has so much to say here. Now, he uses a rhetorical device, a formula. Let me explain what he's doing and not doing. You're going to notice in verse 21 and 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Okay, let, let me tell you what Jesus is and is not doing. Jesus is not introducing a new teaching. He's not putting aside the Old Testament law or saying the Old Testament law is defective. What he's saying is that the way that the Pharisees have been teaching you the law and applying it is all wrong. And so I'm going to correct their misinterpretation. The second thing that he is going to do is to show what God's true purpose in the giving of the law is. And the true purpose in the giving of the law is not merely to restrain evil. It's not merely to conform outward action. But in fact, it is to penetrate our very hearts and our attitudes. That's what Jesus is doing here. So, we're, so, so, so two points, okay? We're first going to look at the autopsy of a murder, groan, okay, autopsy of a murder, the anatomy of a marriage. So let's dig into the first, just these two points. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, you can read that to a room full of non-Christians throughout the history of the world, and you're going to get almost universal affirmation of that. It's because the image of God and the law of God is written on every person's heart, not just Christians. It's something that we would universally acknowledge. It's a maxim written on people's hearts. But what Jesus here is wanting us to understand is, is not just the physical act of murder. He wants us to examine the autopsy of the murder, how murder happens. And in doing this, let me say this, everything that we're going to say about this or that Jesus says about this is going to be applied to all the other areas as well. And again, Jesus' great agenda here is to show us murder always begins in the heart. And Jesus is after the heart. Listen to what he says in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Now, here's the key. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. 
you know, unless you're a professional assassin, unless you're a Jason Bourne, and if you are, I don't want to know about it, right? Nobody wakes up one day and says, today is the day I think I will kill someone. That doesn't, that's not how that works, right? You don't go from peace and shalom and happiness and contentment to murder. No, 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 no. We, we know that's not how that works, right? Murder flows out of a corruption of the heart. It flows out of an angry heart or a heart full of rage or a heart full of bitterness. And oftentimes it can flow out of a heart of covetousness. I want something that person has. I want to take away what that person has. I want to eliminate this problem in my life. That's the root of murder, right? And this coincides exactly with what Samuel says or what, what God says to Samuel in, in 1 Samuel. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. He's talking about David because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, the implications of this are immense. And, and, and what I'm, what I'm going to say about this will, will catch some of us up short. It will sound hard. It, it might even sound a little bit offensive. You know, in the movie Ratatouille, the, the chef tells, tells the rats, just think about that for a second. Not everyone can be a great chef, but a great chef can come from anywhere. Guys, not everyone in this room is going to be a physical murderer, but a murderer can come from anywhere. See, the first step towards physical murder is being in denial that in the heart of every human being, including in this room, there is murder lurking. That, that, that murder, as far-fetched as it may seem, is always within the realm of possibility of the human heart. You've heard me share this story before, but at the end of World War II, when they corralled all the Nazis and the war criminals and they put them in this sort of hospital institution to be examined and studied before they stood trial in Nuremberg, one of the American doctors came in fully expecting what he was going to discover was a room of complete psychopaths, right? These were crazy men. These were bloodthirsty men. These were, I mean, they had to score off the charts on whatever mental illness you have to score off the charts on to, to do these sort of deeds. And here was the shocking thing that he found and the scary thing that he found. They were all relatively normal. That when you sat down and talked to them on a personal one-on-one -on -one basis, you would just think they were your average, your average Joe. It was only as they were put into certain contexts with certain people and certain circumstances with other people around them that the, the, the rage and the anger that was deeply embedded in their hearts began to flow out and take incredibly dastardly form in the killing of other human beings. And what Jesus is saying, every murderer begins in the same place. 
It always begins in the heart. This is why, look at, Jesus says what he says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, growing up, I remember being told, and I call this the, the Clubber Lang theology. Remember Clubber Lang, Rocky Three, I pity the fool, that, that guy, right, Mr. T? That if you dared call someone a fool, you might as, that was like one step towards hell. You might as well, you're, you're long gone, right? So we do not call people fools. We do not call people morons, which is actually what the word, one of the words means here. Here's the problem with that. These, those words, fool and moron, are great biblical words. Remember, this is patterned off the wisdom literature, and the wisdom literature has a ton to say about fools, right? Talks about the fool and his folly. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. And so it's, it's actually a good biblical word. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the kinds of curses and things we utter against one another within the context of conflictual interpersonal relationships. See, Jesus here is not talking about physical murder anymore. He's talking about relational murder. He's talking about relational savagery. He's talking about having, maybe having a perfectly ordered life on the outside like the Pharisees. But within the context of our human relationships and our marriages and those who are close to us, that there's sort of this cauldron of dysfunction. And this is why Jesus says, if you're offering your gift... And you notice, and you remember, my brother has something against me to, to leave the offering of the gift and go be reconciled. Now, let me tell you what, what I think that means and not mean. There's a little bit of hyperbole here, okay? Um, it doesn't mean if you're coming up to the communion table this morning and you remember that in sixth grade you called somebody a name that you need to leave and go make that right. I mean, maybe some of you do, but, but most of us know, right? Well, what it means, remember this. The, these were addressed, this address was, was given to people in Galilee, 85 miles from Jerusalem. There's only one place as a Jew you could offer a sacrifice that was in the temple, on the Temple Mount. And what Jesus is saying, and remember, to, to, to journey to the, to the Temple Mount, I mean, this was multiple days, dangerous, sleep in the cold or the heat. It was tough traveling. You had to sleep in tents. You had to bring your offering with you. You had to go to all this massive trouble in order to offer your gifts in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, even if you go to all that and there's something amiss in your relational life, you might as well go all the way back to Nazareth and make it right. That, that, that's his point, which is, which is to emphasize to us the level of urgency God has for us as his people to live in peaceful, reconciled relationship. Here, here's the thing, what Jesus is saying, you're all here for physical worship, great. But it doesn't mean anything to me apart from spiritual worship. 
If you're confessing with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, while at the same time destroying your brother, gossiping behind their back, being in perpetual relational conflict, then that's the worship that I'm most concerned about. And then Jesus offers this, this word in verse 25. So he, so he says, come to terms with your accuser, quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let me just say something about this verse. This is not a prescription or teaching about legal matters. Okay, that, that's not what the point here. The point here is that if you know you're about to be tossed into prison because you have defrauded your brother, what are you going to do? You're going to go make it right with your brother. Jesus says, that's how I view relational conflict. That's how serious it is. That's the urgency, Jesus said, I want you to carry as my followers, as citizens of the king and of my kingdom, which should all bring us to this point as we're here this morning, is there any unfinished relational business in our lives? Is there anyone we know that holds something against us? Jesus says, go, go to your brother. Is, is there anything that, that you've been harboring in your heart, anger, bitterness, and resentment that is preventing fellowship with you and another believer? Jesus says, go make it right. Now understand, there are certain situations you don't have control over. This is why Paul says, as, long, as far as it's up to you, live at peace with all men. Meaning, as far as it's up to you. That it, with a clear conscience, can you say, I've done what I can do here. I've taken this as far as I can take it. No, that doesn't mean there, there's not an opportunity for, for forbearance. What is forbearance? Forbearance is when love covers over a multitude of sins, right? That it's not so much that there is this deep division in our relationship but I'm just still harboring some things. I still, there's just some things that are, that are in my soul. You need to either do one of two things. You either need to deal with God in that and swallow it and say, God's got that one. Or I need to be prepared to take that to my brother. I need to be prepared to take that to my sister. See, what Jesus, see, do you see how Jesus is reorganizing the values and priorities of the kingdom here? The Pharisees are all about looking good. And Jesus says, I'm all about living in restored relationships because I'm going to make peace with you on the cross. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't just drop the mic after this? And leave them with this ethical teaching. No, no, Jesus has other business to do. He knows we're going to fail. He knows there's going to be conflict that we're going to be incapable of resolving. That's why he goes to the cross. That's why he lays his life down. But for us, he says, as my follower, look to your own hearts as your spiritual act of worship. Okay, second point. I'll go through this one a little more quickly. The anatomy 
of a marriage or the anatomy of adultery. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, everything we just said about murder and the heart and flowing out of the heart and all, that's all 100% absolutely true and applicable to this one, okay? So Jesus is quoting the seventh commandment from Exodus chapter 20. But this one should get our attention a little more quickly. Why? We know that physical murder will most likely land us in prison. There is no law in most cases against physical adultery. Now, it might cost us relationships and marriages and families, but but it's one that's much more within the realm of possibility. And because of that, Jesus wants to us to take particular attention in much the same way as it was with murder. Physical adultery is never a physical adultery flows out of an adulterous heart. Again, no one who's in a harmonious, flourishing marriage or place with the Lord wakes up one day and says, today's the day I'm going to flush my life down the toilet. It doesn't work that way, right? There, there's something lurking in the heart. Look at verse 28. It gives us a, a, a sense of this. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me say what this means and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we as Christians should not recognize physical beauty. We absolutely should. And that's a proper thing to say. That is a beautiful young woman. That's a, be- that, that's a, that's a good-looking young man. That's a well-put-together couple. That's a, whatever you want to say, right? And, that, and that's part of being made in the image of God. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That phrase, lustful intent, literally means to make a plan. To conjure up a scheme. It might be a mental scheme where you're envisioning a whole sort of sexual kind of fantasy life. It could be a physical scheme where you are conjuring up what you want to do and how you want to do it and how you want to make something happen. But here, but here is what I think Jesus really puts his finger on here. And I've been doing pastoral ministry for over a quarter of a century. I think I can say this. With some, with some level of just experiential authority, physical adultery is rarely just about sex. Rarely. So there was a, a, a man a long time ago who was wrestling through serial adultery offenses that he committed against his, his wife. And as they were trying to rebuild the marriage unsuccessfully, I remember him saying this, you know, Pastor Paul, Everything in our marriage was great, except our sex life. And so I just had to kind of go outside the relationship to find the sex. That's an absolute lie. That's, that's not how these things work. It may start with a sexual temptation or titillation, but it always involves a fundamental discontentment with what God has provided. I deserve a spouse that will be more available to me. 
I'm bored with this life. I'm tired of this life. God, God owes me a different kind of life. If I want to look out for myself, I've got to begin to envision this new life. And, and you see how this dream begins to take root in the heart. And you begin to imagine yourself in other places, in other circumstances, in other times, with other people, until finally it gives full bloom to physical adultery. Jesus says, I'm not just concerned with your physical adultery. He says, I'm concerned with your spiritual adultery. I, I, I want that part of your heart as well. Pharisees, I know, okay, that you, that, that you haven't committed physical adultery, but, but in every other way you've corrupted, you're, you're corrupted in your hearts. And that's not pleasing to me as your God. See, when we understand that all sin, by the way, all sin is about discontentment, is about covetousness, about, it's, it's a spiritual wanderlust. And this, this really will open our eyes to the systemic nature of sin, right? So I believe, so think, stay with me for just a second, because Martin Luther makes the point that if you disobey one commandment of the Ten Commandments, it's going to, by necessity, involve disobeying multiple commandments. They're all tied together. Let me, let me show you how this works. The very first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the foundational commandment. It's commandment number one. It's the commandment that flow, everything flows out of. Love God, serve him, trust him alone. But what's the last commandment? The penultimate commandment, the other commandment that, that bookends the Ten Commandments, it's what? You shall not covet. And it's interesting. God says, don't covet, you know, your neighbor's house, his truck, his four-wheeler, you know, all those things. But then what does he throw in there? And don't even covet his wife. You see... There is the sense we have to recognize that all sin is idolatry. All sin is saying, I am not satisfied with God. I am not satisfied with what he's given and provided. I am discontent. And that heart of covetousness gives reign to all sorts of mischief, doesn't it? It's the discontent heart that is the idolatrous heart. And Jesus says, that's what I'm interested in. Because we're, we're in your own life, we're in your own, your job, your marriage. Have you grown discontent? Have you let it take root? And it's just sort of eroding your soul. As you envision a new life, a new job, a new spouse. Guys, this is a, a ser very serious thing, which is why Jesus proposes a very serious solution. It's pretty radical. Look back at the text. You've heard it a million times. You've probably been told all the things it doesn't mean. I'm going to try to zero in on what I think it does mean, okay? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
Now, there have been some radical sects in Christian history which have taken these things quite literally, okay? But there's other movements that have really used these verses to build a whole theology on. So really the whole monastic movement where people moved out to the, to the desert and lived alone. And, you know, I want to be free from the world and its contamination of, of, of sin. I can see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. What's the problem with that? Because you can leave the evil confines of the world, but you can never leave your own heart behind. The heart is, as John Calvin would say, an idle factory. And so I don't think Jesus is, is, is commanding us, okay, on the literal aspect of this. Again, it's hyperbole. But what he is getting at, what he is asking us to do is to get serious about our posture towards sin. That we can see the destructiveness of sin. That we remember Satan is not a mythical character. He's not a cartoon character. He is alive and well. He is roaming around seeking someone to conquer and devour. And Jesus says, I want you to get urgent about this. I don't want you to like in the lazy river and in the tube going around the circle over and over and over again. He said, I want you to be on alert. I want you to be sober minded. I want you to be ready to step into that place and to do whatever is needed to be done to set me apart as Christ, as your Lord in your heart. So some of you know my testimony. I became a Christian when I was 19. I, um, I, was, in, I was raised in a Christian home, but I was very nominal. And there was nothing about my life up those first 19 years freshman in college that resembled Christianity. In fact, I had a, a whole network of friends that even as I look back on it today, I, I think we had a pretty close-knit high school group. We road tripped together, we did stuff together. Um, we, were, we were tight, we all went off to college together. But when I became a Christian, I knew something radical had to change. I knew that if I did not get busy building a new community and a new set of friends with a new set of priorities, I was hopelessly sunk. Because I would have loved to say I could have marched right into that room with all those high school friends and shared the gospel and lived out a gospel-centered life and called them to come along with me. I just wasn't there. I knew that if I did not have a community of people stronger than me spiritually, I wasn't going to make it. And you know what it felt like at the time? An amputation. That's the point. Some of the things that we're going to have to say no to are going to hurt. Some of the, the cost of discipleship to deny ourselves to pick up our cross and follow Christ because that's not an easy thing. Empowered by the Spirit, it's possible, but it's not easy. There will always be a cost. And Jesus says, that's the kind of urgency I want you to bring to guard your heart. That's the kind of urgency I want you to bring to this very short mist-like vapor you have 
of your life. We're only here for such a short amount of time. Christian, don't you want to finish well? Don't you want to be faithful? Don't, don't you want to have the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant? The writer of Hebrews shows us the way. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us. Let me just ask you as we're coming to a close here. What, what do you need to lay aside? What, what are the things in your life that are, that are literal spiritual weights on you in your Christian race? What are the things that are lurking in your heart? Your discontentment, your covetousness, your anger, your bitterness, your lust, whatever it is. We all have it that you need to bring to Jesus this morning. Because the invitation is here. What did Jesus want to have, have happened by him preaching this? It's not for everybody listening to say, I'm good with that, Jesus. Thank you very much. It was so that they would say, that's me. I, I am the man. I am the man with the covetous heart and the adulterous heart and the murderous heart. And so, Jesus, we look to you. We are confessing our sins. We are turning to you. We're praying for a heart of repentance. That is open to every single one of you this morning. The gospel of grace. Guys, do you, do you understand when I say, we, you hear us say this all the time, Christians never get past the gospel. There's never a time in your life when you stop needing the gospel. You need the gospel just as much today as you did the day you converted to Jesus Christ. Folks, let me say that, then we'll come to the table. The, the, the goal of these commands is not simply that you won't kill anybody or sleep with somebody who's not your spouse. It's that you would have a fulfilled, flourishing life found only in Jesus Christ. And it's in him and him alone that we find the life flourishing. As, as we come to the table this morning, just begin to ask yourself the same questions Jesus is asking them. Who, who do I need to make peace with? What do I need to confess? Who do I need to bring into the loop? What, what, what are the things that I need to, to where are the points that God needs to do surgery in my life? What are the things that I need to remove? Where do I need to get radical? Where do I need to get urgent? Knowing those things don't save you, but they're evidence that God has transformed your heart only through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and as you're doing so, sifting God's word from this morning, ask God to prepare your heart as you come to the table.